Today's Animal Spirits is brought to you by our friends at YCharts. The crack research team at YCharts sent us this really cool chart using their custom securities tool that we talked about a couple weeks ago. And they took Disney, which, credit to me, was maybe my best call ever on this podcast, that Disney Plus was going to be huge. So they broke down Disney's share price over the past, looks like 18 months or so, maybe a year. And then they broke the revenue out because they inputted it. So ESPN Plus revenue, Disney Plus revenue, Hulu revenue, which I think maybe a lot of people don't know unless they follow closely that Hulu actually is part of Disney. And then Disney Parks. And so, of course, Parks revenue is down like 50%. But ESPN Plus is up 200%. Disney Plus is up 160%. What's ESPN Plus? That's pretty impressive growth. I mean, I'm sure it's still tiny, but still. Part of it is because you can bundle ESPN Plus, Disney Plus, and Hulu together for a cheaper price. They're going in on MMA, right? Yeah, and it's part of the fact that people are just cutting the cable, I think. But this is a really cool chart. I might want to retract my credit to you. Did you put $10,000 into Disney? I bought shares for each of my kids. Not $10,000 worth. I have money in Disney, yes. I bought at the time. So Disney passed 100 plus million subscribers worldwide. I think they said... Netflix CEO Reed Hastings didn't think it was possible that they could get 60 million in its first year. Now they've passed 100 million. Obviously, the pandemic is part of it, but this is a really cool chart. This custom securities, we'll put a picture of this in our show notes just to show how it's broken out. It's a really cool tool you can play with. Go to Y Charts. Someone just asked on Twitter today, How do I get my animal spirits discount from Y Charts? There's no discount code necessary. Just go to them, say you're a listener of the show. Tell them that you've heard Michael's terrible movie takes before. You got to go to MetaMask, link your wallet, got to pay some gas fees, transfer Ethereum. It's very simple. Yeah. Go to YCharts. Just tell me Animal Spirits sent you. They'll give you 20% off your initial subscription. Welcome to Animal Spirits, a show about markets, life, and investing. Join Michael Batnick and Ben Carlson as they talk about what they're reading, writing, and watching. Michael Batnick and Ben Carlson work for Ritholtz Wealth Management. All opinions expressed by Michael and Ben or any podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of Ritholtz Wealth Management. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for investment decisions. Clients of Ritholtz Wealth Management may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. All right. Welcome to Animal Spirits with Michael and Ben. We're going to start out talking about real estate. There was an article in the journal last week showing that U.S. homeowners cashed out $152 billion in home equity last year, a 42% increase from 2019 and the most since 2007. Obviously, there are a few things at play. One is people needed cash. Two is they needed cash to survive the pandemic. Two is ultra low interest rates. Three is rising home values. And maybe number four is people staying put and doing a lot of home renovations. It is surprising. They show this by year going to 2000. It was double this in like 06, 05, 07. And so even though this is increasing, it was way higher back then. And honestly, it's a crazy chart. Wow. It would shock me if this didn't continue to rise for a number of reasons. One is, how often do you hear these anecdotal stories of people trying to buy a home? We talked about it last week for some listeners, but I just heard again this weekend, hey, my coworker's son is trying to buy a house and every house he tries to put a down payment on, it ends up going for 50000 over asking. You're hearing all these stories. So eventually people are going to say, all right, you know what? screw this. I'm not going to try to buy a new home if this is going to be the market. I'm just going to renovate my current home and make it better. Rates being so low and the fact that everyone has equity in their home now, if you bought a home in the last any time within the last year or longer, you've got some decent equity built up already from the leverage, right? So why aren't people going to start taking that out at low rates and take some equity out of their home and just make it better or use that money for something else? So it would shock me if this number didn't go higher in the coming years. 
I'm curious to see what happens in the spring when people that were planning to move but didn't want to move because of the pandemic put their house on the market. I suspect that there will be a lot of supply, but will probably be gobbled up by demand because there's so many people my age that are still first-time home buyers that probably missed their window last year. Yeah. So there should be more people who just said, I'm not going to have people walk through my house during a pandemic. I'm not going to sell. You could definitely see it like this summer. I'm sure there's going to be hopefully a lot more supply that comes on because it is so, so low right now. The other good thing about this, the Federal Reserve, the New York Fed breaks it out by, they break out these mortgage originations by credit score. And these originations contain the refis. And the vast majority of them are for credit scores 760 plus. Whereas in the past, especially in that 2005 area, a lot of these refis and mortgages were going to much lower credit scores. These are more high quality borrowers now. So this is, this is not like a bunch of subprime borrowers taking money out that are going to default someday. This is worthy borrowers. A few more data points that I want to highlight. Before the housing market crash that followed the crisis, almost 90% of borrowers who refinance chose to extract cash. Last year, about one-third of refinancers chose the cash-out option. So what happens is you take cash out of your house, what? You just tack it onto the end of your mortgage, right? Yeah. So you just take out a little bit of a bigger mortgage. Right. So they said there could be other pitfalls to cash out refis. When you do refinance it to a new 30-year mortgage, you essentially reset the clock on your payments. So over time, that obviously adds, could add years to the life of your loan, potentially. And you could end up paying tens of thousands of dollars in additional interest, not to mention closing costs. Right. If you've been paying your house off for five years, you would technically have 25 years left if you have a 30-year fixed mortgage. But if you refinance after that five years, now you have another 30. So you have to think about that. One of the things that I did with my first house, I refinanced like four times. Every time I refinanced, I kept paying the same exact amount. And honestly, by the end of it, I think I went from six to three or whatever. I was almost making a double payment by the time I was done refinancing. Obviously, the rates have probably hit their lower bound and are now moving up now, but that's the idea. I also wanted to talk about the fact that last week we mentioned why real estate is a good hedge against inflation. And some people were saying, oh, wow, I've never heard it that way. That actually makes a lot of sense. And other people were saying, no, you guys are idiots. But especially for thinking through the middle class. So this data from Edward Wolf, I've always come back to. This is a chart I made using his data. And if you look at like the top 1%, they break it out. He broke this out by wealth, by primary residence versus financial assets. And the top 1% has nearly 80% of their money in financial assets and like 10% primary residence because they have so much more money than everyone else. The next 19% of people is more like 40% in financial assets and 30% in their house. The other 80%, the whole bottom 80%, has over 60% in their primary residence and like 10% in financial assets. Their house is their nest egg for most people. Right or wrong, that's kind of the way it works out. Housing is a form of forced savings. These people don't have enough discretionary income to save, whatever the case may be. Their house is it for them. And if you look at it, you think about, so the U.S. homeownership rate, so there's this chart from YCharts on this, it's like 66%. For some reason, it had this huge spike up to 68 in the middle of the pandemic. Now it's come back a little bit, but still 66%. So a lot of people are saying that, well, that's an elitist way to think about the world because if you're saying that people are going to benefit from inflation because they own a home, a lot of people are screwed. You know who's just really screwed here is kind of millennials. Because if two-thirds of the country already owns a house and you're in the group that is trying to now buy your first home, Gen Z, we've talked about, is probably in a good position because they can rent more cheaply now in big cities if that's what they choose to do. I think millennials just got screwed. They were just in a horrible position, right? Because if you own a home right now, it's going up in value. Rates have come down so you could refinance. You're in a pretty good position where if you locked in rates for 3% or 2.5%, whatever it is, 
if inflation comes in at 2%, you're effectively, after interest costs, are borrowing for nothing. Well, first-time home buyers, yeah, it sucks. Did you know that the oldest millennial is now 65 years old? That's me. <laughs> a lot of people didn't really understand that. It's like, yeah, anytime you borrow for a long period of time, inflation is a pretty good thing for you because it's the opposite of being a bondholder. If you're a bondholder, your biggest risk is not interest rate volatility, it's inflation, eating away at the money that you're being paid back in a fixed amount over time. Anyway, just wanted to kind of mention that, that I think overall, you know, housing prices going up and interest rates going down and stuff is benefiting homeowners. Unfortunately, for people who are just trying to buy their first home and come up with a huge down payment, they're at a huge disadvantage right now. Yeah, it's brutal. Okay. I cannot imagine being a bear on the economy right now. How about this? This is from Goldman Sachs. We have raised our GDP forecast to reflect the latest fiscal policy news and now expect 8% growth in 2021 and an unemployment rate of 4% by the end of the year, the lowest among census forecasts that falls to 3.5% in 2022, 3.2% unemployment by 2023, Goldman is calling for. Is anybody bearish on the economy? I feel like people are bearish on the stock market. I'm not seeing... You can be bearish on the stock market and bullish on the economy. It's sort of like when people were bearish on Bitcoin, but bullish on the blockchain, which turned out to be pretty Wrong. terrible, pretty bad. Don't you think we're going to get the anti-Fed, anti-government people are going to be so angry at this? Like, I think we're going to have an economic boom for two to three years. People are going to be mad about it. Can you see that happening? People are always mad. Just like when the stock market was rising, well, if you took out the Fed, if the Fed wasn't propping up, this wouldn't happen. And they're going to say the same thing about the economy that, oh, if it wasn't for the government. But I always go back to this one from Bill McBride wrote, three or four years ago, that 2% is the new 4% for economic growth because of demographics, population growth. And that always kind of stuck with me. But now I think politicians realize economic growth is a policy choice. You can hate that if you want, and you can write newsletters about how it's not fair and it's all going to be fake growth and it's manipulated. But if politicians want economic growth, they can create it by spending money. Obviously, there's risks to that, but that is a thing. And I think politicians are realizing that. Like, Can you imagine if we get... 6% growth for a couple of years or something. How is that ever going to be taken off the table unless political will decides they don't want this anymore? What's your price tag on the Dow? <laughs> I don't... Let's go. Put some meat on no, this. I'm, again, I'm saying this is probably more bullish for the economy than the stock market in some ways. Just say it. That's a cop out. I'm super bullish on the stock market. I'm not afraid to say it. I think I would be happy in the coming years with just average returns, 8 to 10%. I'm not saying like 20% a year. After the financial crisis, every economist was... You remember that Robert Gordon book, which I think is still one of the better statistical books I've read in a long... I go back to that book... The Rise and Fall of American Growth is excellent. I reference that one all the time for these, like how things have changed over time and how all these economists for so long were talking about secular stagnation and, and things getting worse and we're screwed basically. So Neil Irwin at the New York Times wrote a piece about how he's finally, after like 20 years of writing about the economy... He's finally optimistic for like the first time in his career. And he gave like these 17 reasons. And he talked about battery technology, for instance. He said that the price of these lithium-ion batteries has fallen 90% since 2010. Then you have these things coming like driverless cars and remote work. The fact that like a crisis like this spurs innovation like vaccines, tight labor markets, like places are going to have to innovate. If you have 3% unemployment rate, you're going to have to either innovate or become more productive or more efficient. He's talking about how millennials are ending their prime earning years. Economic growth, you know, again, it's a policy choice. And the Fed has said, like, we're stepping out of the way and we're going to let this thing run a little hot. And it's weird to think that that is happening. At the same time, people are calling for 
the stock market to just fall out of bed and completely crash and fall 60%. I just can't square that in my mind right now that you could think that. I mean, maybe you say, well, it's a bubble and bubbles always get worse. And so the bubble will go for three more years and then it'll crash. But you think people are afraid to like be vocally bullish. We often toe the line. I'm super bullish right now. Caveat, I'm not like doing anything about it differently than I ordinarily would. Like I'm always invested in the same posture. I wouldn't be surprised if I'm completely wrong and I look like a moron, but I'm not afraid to say it. I'm very, very bullish on the stock market. I think that we spoke about this last week briefly that like people are getting too cute and overthinking this. It's hard for me to see an economic boom without the stock market joining. And maybe we already got those gains in the last five years. I don't know. I guess that's possible, but I would be fairly surprised if that's the outcome. I do think by nature, finance people are just apt to look at the risk and the downside of things. Sure. I get it. Yeah. I think that I have an optimistic bent, but I do agree. Like We have to still look for the range of outcomes and what if something comes out of left field that we don't know about. And 2012... At Barry's Big Picture Conference, I remember listening to Dylan Grice. I don't remember if he was at Sock John at the time, but I was blown away by his intellect. He sounded so smart and he scared the shit out of me. He said, I get paid to worry about the downside. The upside will take care of itself. I thought that was like so intellectually stimulating. But for goodness sakes, if you're too worried about the downside, then you're not going to get the upside. Yes. And I think too many people in finance have been conditioned to realize that talking more about the downside sells way better than the upside in the past 12 to 15 years. So I think people are still so scarred by the 2008 experience. Well, because if you're bullish and wrong, you're clearly wrong. Like you have egg on your face, you were cheerleader, you were naive to the risks. But if you're bearish, then you could just say I'm early. There's no end date, right? You could be perpetually bearish because listen, an 80% decline, I know I've been saying it for 17 years, but just one 80% decline away from me being right. I just saw Harry Dent last week was calling for another crash this year. There you go. If you, can, if you can believe it. He means it this time. All right. So this was some good myth busting, I thought, by Morgan Housel. You've seen this chart, this M1 money stock chart, and it just goes vertical last year. And people use that as the, I don't know, the overlay that chart on everything, the stock market, interest rates, whatever. I don't think anyone really that posts that chart as a scare tactic even really realizes what it is. So it's just cash. M1 is cash, right? What are you laughing at? Sorry. I just got distracted by a Joe Wisethal tweet. Sorry to interrupt. This is pretty great, though. People accuse me of being a fiat shell. Well, I've decided to put my money where my mouth is. In 2021, I'm elected to take my entire salary in USD. <laughs> <laughs> We're speaking about money supply. Yeah, it's, speaking it's appropriate. Of, all right. So M1 is money supply. So it's like paper and cash and coins and checking accounts. And M2 includes like money markets and savings accounts. And Morgan says, yes, this thing charged higher. But the Fed also said that like they eliminated this rule on savings account that you could have a six withdrawal limit in a month or something. That shifted savings accounts from M2 to M1. $11 trillion of this $14 trillion increase came from moving savings accounts to checking accounts. It was basically an accounting change. Okay, got it. So 80% came from an accounting rule. Okay, fine. Fair enough. But that doesn't take away from the fact that we still printed a shit ton of money, which I'm fine with, but we did. But not as much money as people thought. This is, I thought, like one of the greatest charts I've seen in a while. So someone posted this on Twitter this morning, and it's government debt from 1990 to 2020. And it also shows a net interest cost. Government debt is up threefold almost in that time. And net interest cost, the amount of interest expenses you pay on that, has almost been cut in half. USA. So because interest rates have fallen so much, we're paying half as much as we did in 1990 on government debt for interest expense. So people always say like, 
Who's going to pay for it? Well, we have so much more. If rates stay this low, we have plenty of room to print more money. I just paid my 1942 bill off taxes. I was pretty happy to pay it. I got to be honest. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks a lot, Grandpa. You saved the world. Now I'm just paying off my bill. This tweet made me smile. Somebody tweeted, American Airlines is telling 13,000 workers who received notices of April 1 furloughs, quote, you can tear them up. House passage of $1.9 trillion stimulus bill extends airline payroll support program once again. And people will see this and legitimately get mad about airlines and buybacks. Right. People just had their jobs saved, right? Right. Yes. Yes. Unequivocally a good thing. We could argue about the details later. Maybe if you want to put some guardrails in place for next time, but come on. Come on. We're saving people. Yes. Again, I get the fact that people were mad at the 2008 bailouts and a little that has stuck around, but this isn't nearly as bad as people want to make it out to. And the weird thing is, we talked last week, this is going to potentially cut child poverty by 50%. And you have people out there like these Silicon Valley people who say, my greatest goal in life is to reduce wealth inequality. And then they complain about this bill without ever having read it once. It's okay to say every once in a while, you know what, I think this isn't perfect, but we got it more right than they have in the past. That's where I stand on it. It's nowhere near perfect, but they got it more right than before. All right. I'm going to read something from the Wall Street Journal, an article on deregulation and utility and energy and all that sort of stuff. And I'm a free markets person. I think most people like free markets. However, we need some guardrails. Sometimes deregulation is bullshit. I'm sorry. Just sometimes it is. So here is from the Wall Street Journal. 20 years ago, a new breed of energy companies promised consumers that deregulation of the electricity industry would cut their power bills. The opposite happened. U.S. consumers who signed up with retail energy companies that emerged from deregulation paid $19.2 billion more than they would have if they'd stuck with incumbent utilities from 2010 to 2019. Retail energy companies buy electricity from generators, power plant operators, wind farms, solar power farms, and sell it to consumers usually over the local utility wires, giving consumers a choice between their old utilities and new rivals, the argument for deregulation went, would create competitive pricing. But in nearly every state, they have charged more than their incumbent utilities in each of the five years from 2015 to 2019, the journal analysis found. They looked at power prices in 13 states in the District of Columbia. This is obviously from the Texas fallout where people got these like 16,000 dollar bills. Don't you think in the future, internet's going to be utility as well? Or shouldn't it be? The ex-CEO of Amazon, you want him to take over this project. What do you mean? Oh, oh, he's the ex-CEO. That's right. He is the ex-CEO. Okay. <laughs> you thought that Bezos should take this project on? Yeah, sure. Why not? Before you go fix space, fix the. make sure everyone has the internet first or make it free. Oh, the market is going to sort this out. People will have more choice. Yeah, what? To read the fine print? Right. This is the kind of thing that I don't want surge pricing at exactly the wrong time. How about we regulate more in this particular case? And if you want to send me an angry email, I'm happy to read it. Yes. RIP, you're communist. <laughs> Guilty as charged. All right. There is somebody on Twitter. His name is Ed Klesold. Ben, do you follow this person? Yeah, he's a Ned Davis guy. Chief strategist for Ned Davis, and he puts out some killer charts. So they showed one chart showing large cap growth earnings per share versus large cap value earnings per share. And the upshot is value has way more earning mean reversion potential. It's way below trend. Growth is way above trend. That's not so surprising, but I've never seen it broken down this way. He has another chart 
So this is a good way of saying growth stocks have had earnings, value stocks have not. What do you mean exactly? Well, growth stock earnings are up, value stock earnings are down. Yes. But if you're looking for the mean reversion play, then yes. Growth stock earnings are above trend, value stock earnings are below trend. This is great. Fan mag earnings nearly doubled to 25% of the S&P 500 in 2020. Surprise, surprise. What percentage of the S&P 500 are they, Ben? 27%. There you go. Magic. That is a good looking chart right there. It's not market manipulation. It's just sometimes the market is the economy. Sometimes businesses are the stock market. I'll bet you could pull a headline from every year from 2013 to 2019 calling for the end of the FANG stocks, right? Or calling it a bubble pretty easily, right? Yeah. All right. Kevin Zatlukal, I hope I said his name right, wrote a piece two weeks ago called Quality and Value and Growth. And most of the time, value is not investing in high quality companies. Call it, I don't know, Costco, for example. Most of the time, it's investing in junky companies that are trading below their intrinsic value because they're shitty companies and people just go too far with discounting them. They're value companies for a reason. Yeah. Nobody wants to be a value stock. Nobody chooses that. That is the market imposing its will on these stocks. Okay. So he looked back at the dot-com era, which is obviously the golden age. The end of the dot-com era is the golden age for value investing. He wrote, the period from 97 to 2001 is the only period on record where the value factor had a strong tilt toward quality rather than junk stocks. At the height of the dot-com bubble, the value portfolio had a sustained correlation of almost 50% with quality, something that had not happened before and has not happened since. And here's the coup de grace. The dot-com bust is seen as a triumph for value investing, and rightfully so, but we should also keep in mind how unusual that period was. Deep value investing was at that time able to buy high-quality stocks at low multiples. That was a once-in-a-career occurrence. Last thing, someone who became a value investor in the early 2000s expecting a repeat of this performance can be waiting a very long time before it happens again. Right. All the high quality companies now are highly priced in terms of valuation. (laughs) And that shows you how crazy that the dot-com bubble was that even high quality stocks were being pushed aside for tech stocks. That's a different story. Whereas today, yes, you have a lot of speculative plays, but you also have these really high quality companies that are being priced to perfection or just priced higher and for good reason. So that makes sense. We've been speaking lately about the correction in growth stocks as an opportunity, or did we lose our mind that we woke up to the fact that we were overpaying? I think it's the former. I think it was a gift. So Stripe yesterday announced that they raised money at a $95 billion valuation. And one of the things that I wanted to talk about was they wrote, only 14% of commerce takes place online today. 14%. Doesn't that sound like we are still... Despite the market prices and the market caps of these companies, which I get is seems astronomical, only 14%. Doesn't that seem very early innings still? I wonder if how much of that needs to be like auto sales that have a huge number, or if you shifted half of that online, or if that would like balance it out a little. Obviously, that's not the whole of commerce. But yes, I agree. But on the other hand, because these companies are so highly valued, you're going to see like this bifurcation of when they report earnings, you're going to see some way increased volatility in the next, whatever, 12 months probably, where some of these stuff- Stitch Fix? Yeah. It's a company that I bought right before it got crushed 30% on earnings. And now it's coming back a little. But I think you're going to see a lot of that where these companies that were so priced for perfection, if they have a little bit of a hiccup, they're going to get slaughtered. And maybe that's the kind of time when you can find high quality companies that at a more value-oriented space, even though if the traditional value metrics aren't there. All right. Here's one that is Entering cigar butt stage for me. Beeple sold for $69.3 million for his 
highest priced JPEG in history. What a steal. So, by the way, the person <laughs> that bought it said it's worth a billion. Okay. Here's the interesting part to me. And obviously, we've talked about this NFT stuff for a little while. I do think it's really cool for creative people that they can now write into their contracts that they make a percentage of. I think from that perspective, this thing is really cool. Have you heard people speak yet? Have you listened to him on podcasts or anything like that? I've seen a few interviews with him. Seems like a really just normal, regular, nerdy kind of guy. He is so incredibly likable. I hope this guy sells a billion dollars worth of stuff. He is so likable. Yeah, I like him too. So this is from Christie's which is the auction house where it was sold. Christie's reported that among bidders, 55% were based in the US, 27% in Europe, 80% in Asia. 64% of those who participated were millennial or Gen Z, under 40 years. So two-thirds of the people who were in this bidding were under 40 years old. So this is people with a lot of crypto money. The place who won it was an NFT fund. This guy writes his own. So crypto people are basically making NFTs a thing. Like There's obviously other people that are jumping on and seeing this. I just think it's so impressive that these people with all this money. But this gets back to like what I think is the biggest investment factor of this century. Rich people have a shitload of money. And if rich people want to make something worth something, they can do it. They can't prop up markets forever. But like, if you want to know why stuff is happening in markets, it's because rich people have money and they want something to happen. And so the reason that inequality got so much worse during this pandemic is because rich people had the assets and the income to step in and buy when stocks fell. Have you poked around on Nifty Gateway yet? No, I don't really know what that is. So Nifty Gateway is where the digital art is sold, or at least one of the places. So I was just poking around. I did a thread on Twitter yesterday just to... I picture you like Matthew McConaughey in Interstellar, floating in a spacesuit behind the bookshelf, like looking for your Ethereum. Like, <laughs> where are you? I want my Ethereum back. Like, this is you floating around the blockchain. I mean, the prices are just... They're truly laughable. <laughs> You've got your use case here. And the people that are speculating, it's just rich people moving stuff from one pile to the next and basically creating a market out of thin air, which again is impressive to me. Rich people, they set the prices in markets now. Yes. Because whatever, the top 25% in the US own 92% of the assets of the wealth. So that's why when like bear markets happen, I think from now on, unless the government keeps printing out money and handing it down to the middle and lower classes, the wealthy people are just going to get even wealthier during the bear markets, I think. I think that's what's going to happen. Yes. Bear markets are a catalyst for further wealth inequality. What are you buying on the NFT gateway, whatever this is called? Well, I haven't bought anything yet because everything's just like $900,000. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) All right. There was a survey. uh, How much, if at all, have you heard or read about Clubhouse, NFTs, SPACs, TikTok, Ethereum, ETFs, all the things that we talk about? Basically, nobody knows what's going on. And they asked 4,200 adults. So this seems pretty representative of the US population. Like Clubhouse, for example, 15% said a lot or some, 83% said not much at all. NFTs were 14% knew about it. I made a bad dad joke about NFTs on Twitter last week. And my wife goes, what are NFTs? And I'm like, ah, it's not worth it. I don't want to explain. What was the joke? I said Biden had announced that everyone in America is going to be able to have the vaccine by the end of May. So by the 4th of July, we can all gather I said, I can't wait to gather with friends and family and watch my fireworks NFT together. Okay. Yeah, all right. 22% said they've heard of SPACs before. Yes. Yeah, so this shows how online people like you and I are, right? And people on Twitter, this is the whole Twitter is not real life thing. And people probably listen to this podcast. By the way, last week on the show, we spoke about how yeah, we're probably not going to be Clubhouse power users. And I wish there was like a before, like that thing in a movie, seven hours later. Seven hours later, we were on Clubhouse, literally. 
<laughs> so Ben and I, Ben and I are going to be doing this thing called Animal Spirits. One more thing. Every Wednesday at four, we're probably going to be doing it on Spaces, not Clubhouse, because more people are have access to Spaces. We did Clubhouse last week, and a couple dozen people DM'd or tweeted at us and said, hey, I don't have an invite to Clubhouse, which I think is stupid that they have it set up that way still. I don't know why they have to make it so inclusive. You have to get an invite. Just open it up at this point. On Wednesday, every Wednesday without fail, I listen to the show, and I'm like, oh, I meant to say this, or Ben, whatever, I, you should have said that. So we're going to call it one more thing and just things that we wanted to clear up. We're going to hang out and chat and we'd love to see you there. Four o'clock on Wednesday. And maybe we'll take a question or two as well. All right. JP Morgan Guide to Alternatives. Private equity dry powder. I mean, $330 billion of cash on the sidelines. Yeah, but I've debunked this one before. Go ahead. Do it again. Okay. It's a dry powder technically, but that money gets invested over the period of five to 10 years possibly. Counterpoint. Look at the chart above. So in 2020, which was, I don't need to remind you, a pretty shitty year for everyone, at least most people, there's a chart showing alternative fundraising. Global private equity raised $641 billion, $122 billion in private debt. I mean, there's so much money, Ben. It was down a little bit from 2019, but I mean, if this was 2008, you see a huge drop. So it would have dropped 80%. Don't you think 2021 will see a record? year for private fundraising, anything and everything is getting funded right now. If you're a startup and you have some sort of fintech in your documents, you had your everything is oversubscribed post, you just keep seeing story after story that backs that up. I think, I'm sure it'll be probably a record year. Seth Rogen's weed site crashed when he tweeted about it. Yes. He's probably going to be a billionaire from a weed company he made. I get notifications from Collectible, which is, Collectible is like rally, but just for sports. So they do cards and all sports memorabilia. So I get a notification on my phone that this drop is happening. And then 15 minutes later, like every single day, they're filled within 15 minutes. It's incredible. Last week, we listened to Patrick O'Shaughnessy had a podcast with Josh Wolf and somebody from the military. I think his name was Tony Thomas. I don't know if he was a five-star general, but somebody big in the military. And you and I were speaking about like, does Josh Wolf have the most fun job in the world? <laughs> He's pretty impressive. You've never heard him on a podcast before. It sounds like He's a little bit like Tony Stark almost. He's like going out in the field and helping out these defense projects. And it's interesting to see the stuff he talks about that they're investing in and helping with build. It's venture, but it's really interesting, like sci-fi. He talked about how it's like bringing sci-fi to real life. But it's interesting to compare that with the stuff he's doing and funding defense projects to help the country better protect us from foreign adversaries versus a lot of the venture stuff you hear about that is like, you got this app on your phone. (laughs) <laughs> You're right. That can, I don't know. Like, I'm not trying to poo poo stuff. A lot of this stuff that technology has created has helped entertain us for a while, but I don't know if it's, it's really advancing the world. Yeah. Speaking of DoorDash, not you mentioned DoorDash, but DoorDash is an app on your phone. There was a really interesting Substack on DoorDash and the path to profitability. So the person said, the DoorDash of today isn't the end state of DoorDash. And we spoke about DoorDash a few weeks ago, which is why I bring this up. This is a bull case we've been looking for. It's always really hard. And I did this with Netflix in 2011 when I was short Netflix. I was like, this sucks. The catalog here is terrible. Obviously, I didn't know that House of Cards was going to be a thing. But that's the thing. It's like things evolve and DoorDash today might not be the end state. So they said, the bull case is really this, DashPass. DashPass is service membership. It's the recurring revenue. This person wrote, DashPass is arguably the most important development in the last mile delivery industry, and it might end up being one of the largest subscription products in the US, reaching Netflix and Spotify status. Obviously, we'll see. But if that's the case, then yeah, everybody who's like us, poo-pooing DoorDash is going to be wrong. This is just where they deliver everything to you, basically. 
groceries, food, anything you need. So do you think these companies, Uber and DoorDash and Lyft, I guess Google and Waymo in some ways, are they going to be the ones that push forward the driverless technology? Because for them, they're the ones who really need it. Getting enough drivers is part of the problem for them too, right? Well, but one of the things is like, yes, this person said only 10% of DoorDash drivers do it full time. Have you seen the stories of people getting a job with DoorDash so they can get the vaccine early? Oh, really? That's uh... Because food's... <laughs> you're getting the vaccine, you're getting the vaccine. I don't care at this point. He was saying there might be like fulfillment centers where everything gets shipped there and then the driver brings you like your clothes and your groceries and your Home Depot order or whatever. Don't you trust Amazon more to do that than DoorDash? But Amazon's not doing it. Okay, but Amazon brings me that stuff and it's there the next day. We've been talking about how there's these backlogs and everything. We ordered some chairs for our front porch the other day from Wayfair, just some rockers to sit out in front and watch the kids. Ordered on Friday afternoon, said, hey, what do you think about these? I said, yeah, do it. They were there the next morning from Wayfair. Obviously, it depends on where the stuff is, but I don't know. Maybe DoorDash can be this. I don't know. I feel like Amazon has so much more delivery infrastructure already built in place. Wouldn't you trust them to do it more than DoorDash? If they said, we're getting into food delivery, wouldn't DoorDash fall 20% the same day if Amazon said that? We got a delivery driver going to your neighborhood 12 times a day anyway. Why don't we just bring your food too? I don't know. So there is an interesting thread that I want to share from Macrocephalopod about how screwed up asset management industry can be. I want to highlight can be. I don't want to overstate that this is like what it is. I just thought that this particular story was like interesting. And again, this is not definitely not the entire industry. So with that caveat aside, here we go. Many years ago, we had a fund that was down 20%. The PM was fired and a new PM with new strategies took over the fund. Allocator at a big pension fund with $100 million invested literally begged us to start a new vehicle running the same strategies because they wanted to stay invested but couldn't justify to their boss being in a fund that was 20% underwater. If we agreed it would have crystallized their losses and they would start again with the new high watermark, obviously we didn't do it. Can't remember whether they redeemed or not, but the fund was back above high watermark within 15 months. Our performance fee was 20%. So this allocator was willing to give up $4 million, which was 20% of 20% of $100 million of their investors' money rather than have a difficult conversation with their boss. My experience with the institutional money world that this is not that far away from reality. <laughs> if you're in a hedge fund, you want them under their high watermark at some point because you're not paying them performance fees. So if they play catch up and come back up, then that's a good thing for you because you're not paying that 20% carry. But there's such a political nature to the institutional money management side of the world in terms of committees and boards and optics and career risk is such a bigger role there than at other places. And, and I gleam onto the bad stories more than I should. Those are the ones that stick out to me where you see these decisions where you're like, wait a minute, that's not why you do this, especially when you're managing money for your beneficiaries. And But that's the way things work for some of these funds. All right, here's some potentially good news. So this is from the Investment Company Institute. They show how stock ownership has changed over time. They show it in millions, but also percentages. So as of 1989, it was like 32% of US households own stock in some capacity. It got up to 53% by 2001. This is to the end of 2019. Stayed about 53% after dipping by 2019. I'm guessing by 2020, that has actually increased. But the biggest change has actually come from lower income households. So in 1989, the lowest income household was like 3.6% ownership of anything in stocks. Now it's up to 15%. Even the middle quintile, the middle 20%, has gone from lower than 30% ownership to 56%. So I think this is good news. More people, and we should do our best to try to increase this, right? Because yeah, the total is 53%. So it's still just a little over half of households actually own any stock. And of course, it's at the highest income levels. But this is 
on the margin, good news, right? Oh, absolutely. This is how we help inequality a little bit. It's not, yes, taxing the rich might help a little bit and giving more to the... But I think the reason the rich people have become richer is because they own all the financial assets. That's the thing we need to change. All right. So there was an article in the Wall Street Journal talking about, are we going to see a commodity super cycle? And they showed the three ones over the past century. One was US industrialization in the early 20th century. The second one was post-World War II with Japanese growth and European reconstruction. And then three, the third one was in the early 2000s with China's growth. They basically said, none of those things are in place today. Even though we're seeing oil prices up a little bit and you're seeing soybean and copper and things like that rise, that's more of a supply-demand imbalance that will sort itself out. Not really a super cycle, but just sort of a cycle. Right. And maybe some mean reversion too. It is hard to believe though, I guess it was 11 months ago, oil was trading at negative $37 a barrel. (laughs) Man, I wish I took delivery. Unreal. So Corey Hofstein tweeted this and he talks about this a lot and I couldn't agree more. And I have no data to prove this, but I just intuitively, it makes sense. I think this is so, so overlooked. He said, when discussing inflation and commodities, I think financialization is a massively overlooked variable. William Bernstein wrote this in one of his books about correlation. Until basically 1991, it was more or less impossible for individuals to invest in commodities at all. PIMCO was like the first fund that actually did that. So you're right, like back in the 70s and 80s, it was mostly hedgers and a few hedge fund people that were trading in this. And the futures markets were way, way different than they are now. So he says the 70s are really our only data point in terms of inflation. And since then, we've seen a dramatic rise in passive commodity access, managed future strategies, and alt-risk premia. Shared a link that says, uh, JP Morgan was arguing that CTAs were a huge part of the 2014 oil price downturn. And I think that there's a lot to that that people just don't think about. Yes. In the past, you could, because the futures markets were so inefficient, because it was all just companies hedging out their risks, and there there weren't all these hedge funds and CTAs that were trading these things, you could actually make a good return on the futures market. Now it's completely backwards. It is not as easy to just shoot fish in a barrel like it was. All right, listener questions. Hey guys, I need your help on how to get over a missed opportunity. I'm 26 years old and live with my mom outside Toronto, Canada. About one and a half years ago, I was looking at houses worth around 550. At the time, I thought they were expensive and I wasn't ready to move out. So I passed. I figured the only reason at that time I would be buying was to speculate on housing prices. My plan would have been to rent it out and then move into the house when I was ready. Now I'm about ready to move out and these same homes are selling for 900K. I can't believe it. I have no idea what to do now. I also can't stop thinking about real estate. I've never felt FOMO like this before. How can this market keep going higher? This is a terrible, terrible thing. I think if you're focusing on the prices, you're never going to get over it. And this is why I keep saying like just trying to time the real estate market is impossible. Listen, if this is your home really and truly... If it's a starter home, that's one thing. But even still, let's just say that you pay 10% higher. I mean, is it the end of the world now? If you're speculating with houses like this person was thinking about doing, that's different, right? Speculation, you could get blown up. But if it's your forever home and you have to overpay, there are greater tragedies in the world. And trying to speculate in a place like Toronto or Vancouver or anywhere in California, basically, where the supply-demand dynamics are so tilted, I don't know how you ever time that. I just want to amend what I just said. Because I think that was a little bit harsh. I guess the problem is people can't overpay because they can't afford to. If you saved up for a house that was 550, you can't afford a house that's 800. So you're priced out of the market and that's terrible. The way that I look at owning a home is I don't really look at it like an investment at all. I think it's consumption. And if you make money on it, I think that's like icing on the cake as far as I'm concerned. I don't look at it like that. Okay. We did have one reader write in from Grand Rapids. We had someone ask recently about 
should I buy a rental in Grand Rapids? And someone said they own two duplexes in Grand Rapids. They did better than they thought during the pandemic, didn't miss any rent payments. They let one tenant break a lease because of COVID. But they just said, here's some good advice, I thought. If you're going to buy into rentals, make sure your spouse is on the same page as you. It's very important. And watch out for the uncapping of property tax. Rentals can serve as a hedge against inflation. Again, getting back to the real estate versus inflation. And this person said that they actually use a consultant to manage their duplexes and recommended it because they don't have to deal with the operations of it because that's a big piece of it as well, the ongoing stuff. So anyway, that was was pretty good feedback. All right, one more. What works for you in terms of studying tips for the CFA? Currently plowing through level two material. You're probably closer than I was. What were your studying hacks? God, I hated it. (laughs) I've kind of blocked it out of my mind. I was so dedicated to study. I really feel like I devoted like my life to this, years of it. Because when I took level two, I really had very little industry experience. Actually, the first time I took it in 2011, I had zero industry experience and it was a complete foreign language. So when I retook it, I guess in 2014, I had a little bit more, but still. Yeah. Having experience helps just from the language. I thought taking the test as I was progressing through my career was actually very helpful to me. Yeah. For me, it was every single bit of it was foreign. The only study tips that I could really give are focus less on memorizing the material, get rid of the textbook and just take practice tests. And even if you're failing miserably, you'll get better. So I would just say do as many practice test questions as you possibly can. The textbooks are so dense that I bought the study notes where they take the stuff from the books and they condense it down to bullet points. I didn't do that the first one, the second one. When I got out of CFA level three, I think I passed it in 2009, maybe. I thought the second one was the hardest one by far. And I got out of number three and I felt like I passed it. And I went to Chili's with my wife. And I think I drank a whole bucket of beer by myself because for six months, I didn't do anything but study, right? The third one was way harder than people give it credit for. I thought the third one was the easiest one for me. Okay. Not to brag. No, but it's different for every person. I thought two was hard. And I know some people thought it was a breeze. All right. Let's do some recommendations. How about I start? Okay. I watched The Sound of Metal. We finished it this weekend finally. We had it going, watched half of it, and finished it. Good movies on Amazon Prime. I'd say very good movie, not great, but that Riz Ahmed, I think, is awesome in the movie. So he's the guy from, what is it called, The Night Of? Yes. He's been in a bunch of stuff. I think he's great. So it's about a drummer who loses his hearing and has to go through losing his hearing in his like 20s or 30s and dealing with that and what it's like. And also he was, had gone through rehab before. And his performance, I thought, was just even better than the movie, somewhat based on a true story. Did you watch it? Oh, it's based on a true story? That it happened to a drummer like that for oh, okay. heavy metal. So just loosely based on a true story. I did watch it. Yes, it was a very good movie. He was excellent. You know who else was excellent? This guy, Paul Racy, the instructor at the house, he is actually up for best actor in a supporting role. He was phenomenal. Did you read his backstory? His whole family was deaf. That guy in, uh, in real life. So he has experience with it. He was so good. I thought so too. I like that one. Everybody Wants Some. Have you ever seen this? Never heard of it. So it's a Richard Linklater film. He's the guy who did Days and Confused. It's essentially the follow-up to Days and Confused. So you've never seen that either. I never saw Days and Confused. Days and Confused was based on his high school life. Everybody Wants Some. It, it came out a few years ago, and I don't think it had much fanfare at the time, but it's based on his college experience. So he went to college to play baseball. It's basically just a college party movie and it's way more lighthearted even than Dates and Confused, if you can believe it. But it's just a good college party movie. Good, upbeat. And they nail like the personalities of a college baseball team, I thought perfectly in terms of like the older guys and the younger guys. I hadn't seen that one in a while. So that's a good rewatch too. And 
started reading a while ago, The Short History of Nearly Everything by Bill Bryson. Like you and I talked about doing a podcast on it. Never came out. I've been picking up a bunch of books that I started before the pandemic and now starting them again. It's the kind of book that makes you realize how little you really know about anything. Like that whole chapter on Einstein and what the theory of relativity really is. I read the whole chapter and I still don't quite get it. You read this one, right? Yes. I don't remember that chapter. Afterwards, they were interviewing this guy. They're like, basically, including Einstein, three people in the world understand what what relativity (laughs) really is. And one of the people is probably lying. (laughs) But... Uh, that's great. My six-year-old is really into space right now. And I got her, the kid accompanying one is called A Really Short History of Nearly Everything. Every night we read a few pages and it talks about space and like how big the universe is. And it's really mind-blowing and she likes it. So that's a pretty good one too. All right. I watched a lot of movies this week. Days and Confused falls into that category of I was just too young. I was eight years old when that came out. And for whatever reason, I just never got to that. So I've been spending like the entire pandemic basically cleaning that up. And I feel like now that the end is in sight, My movie watch is going to enter a bear market, and I'm very, very okay with that. All right. So in that vein of early 90s, I watched New Jack City, which was just on the rewatchables for the first time. I don't know. Well, I was about to say, I don't know how I missed it. I was six. (laughs) That's how I missed it. So New Jack City is Wesley Snipes and Ice-T, Chris Rock. I sent you this at the beginning of the movie, literally like as the credits are rolling, they talk about inequality at an all-time high. In 1991, it never changes. This is unfortunately what our country is. Wesley Snipes was a massive star, like massive, massive, massive. And even before his going to jail, like what happened? His career fell off a cliff. Think about someone like Bruce Willis, or I feel like for action stars, it just sort of happens that way. They're just like a stock that has a 70% drawdown that never comes back. Huge blade guy. Is Wesley Snipes the GE of acting? (laughs) All right. Also in 1991, I saw Backdraft. You ever see that one? That is a great movie. Been a long time. 25 minutes too long. Okay. It's been a long time since I've seen it, but I remember seeing it back then. How did they shoot that movie? Fires everywhere? When you open the door and the gust comes in, like that always just scared the crap out of me when I was a kid. That movie, I saw it on the shelf in Blockbuster. Like I remember that was like the giant movie that I was just a little bit too young for. So Bobby D was in that. Okay. And I saw this weekend, I watched on Mean Streets. You ever hear of that one? I never watched it. So Mean Streets is one of Scorsese's earliest movies. It's from 1973. So Bobby D, this is his first big movie. He did this right before he did Godfather Part Two. This is like, I guess, his first coming out movie. So it's De Niro and Harvey Keitel. And De Niro basically plays, it's a gangster movie. De Niro plays uh, Dope, just a moron who owes money all over town. And it's sort of similar in that respect to Uncut Gems. He just owes money and he's going to pay it back. He's going to pay it back. So him and Harvey Keitel together as like, I don't know how old they were, in their 20s. The movie wasn't great, but it's worth watching. It was pretty good. That got me thinking after I saw De Niro in Backdraft, I didn't realize that he was in it. I, so I went through his catalog. He's got the best IMDb of all time. Probably true. Except for the Bullwinkle movie. but He's been in some clunkers. I know. For sure. Last one. The Way Back. Ben Affleck snubbed from the Oscars. That was a good movie, right? It was pretty good. It was a good movie. So best picture this year. We've got... The Father, never saw it with Anthony Hopkins, Judas and the Black Messiah, Mank, Minari. I never heard of Minari. Have you? That's the one of the Korean farmers. I just saw the uh, trailer. Okay. I never heard of it. Nomadland, Promising Young Women, which I really want to see. I haven't gotten into that yet. Sound of Metal and The Trial of Chicago 7. This has to be the worst crop of all time. Not one of these. And I very much like Sound of Metal, but that's not a great movie. It's a good movie. It's a very good movie. That's why I don't get why all these studios decided to push their movies back. They could have like run the Oscars if they put out any good movies this year. 
why did they not put out all their good movies this year just so they could win the Oscars and then re-release them when things open up? I don't know. So if Nomadland wins, my God, I would vote for Judas and Black Messiah, which was a very good, not great movie. It was like half of a good movie. I really enjoyed it. But like, man, just a lousy crop of movies for a lousy year. (laughs) Borat 2 got nominated for an Oscar in some categories. Well, she was awesome. The supporting actress. I forget her name. It was awful, though. I liked it. Sorry. An Oscar? No, I know. know. Come on. I know. I know. Yes. Worst year for Oscars in a long time. Maybe we have a mean reversion next year. All right. AnimalSpiritsPod at gmail.com. Again, next Wednesday. We're going live. This Wednesday. Oh, this Wednesday. I'm sorry. We'll announce it on Twitter. So if you don't follow us on Twitter, follow us there. I think we'll try spaces this time, right? Yeah, we're going to go for spaces. We asked Twitter for spaces. They delivered. We got it. Thank you, Jared. Yes, we got access. All right. AnimalSpiritsPod at gmail.com. We'll see you on Friday. Friday.